This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. I'm Alistair Roberts. I'm the Rappaport Professor of Law and Public Policy here at Suffolk University Law School, and this is the Rappaport Center's new public policy podcast series. Today we're talking about the results from the 2010 midterm elections and the blue sweep in Massachusetts. Uh, and our guest is Warren Tolman. Warren is a member of the Rappaport Center's advisory board. He's of counsel at Holland and Knight. He's a former state senator and also a former candidate for lieutenant governor and governor in the state of Massachusetts. The uh, Democrats had uh, good results yesterday. Was there anything in the results that you saw from Massachusetts in yesterday's election that was surprising to you? Uh, I, I think some of the margins of victory uh, that Democrats had, and, and uh, while I would have, if you put a gun to my head, I would have suggested that it could be a clean sweep, uh, it was certainly nice to basically run the table. Uh, I did see some losses in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts uh, that were a little broader than one might have anticipated, but I think there are a variety of factors that that uh, led to those results. But generally speaking, I think it was um, what I would have anticipated. Um, I thought uh, that the 10th Congressional District between Bill Keating and Jeff Perry would go as it did. Um, I thought Barney Frank's uh, margin was, was good and healthy. You know, I, obviously as a Democrat, I was generally very pleased with the results in Massachusetts, not necessarily so much throughout the rest of the country. Why do you think Massachusetts didn't follow the national trend in favor of the Republicans? Well, part of it is that we that in order to win, you have to put up candidates. And, for instance, in the legislature as a whole in Massachusetts, there were 85 incumbent Democrats who did not even have any opposition. That's out of 160 members in, in, in total House of Representatives. Similarly, uh, in the, on the congressional races, if you want to win elections, you've got to put up good candidates. Uh, and I don't think the candidates that they put up were necessarily their strongest candidates on the Republican side. I'll give you a couple examples. John Golnick running uh, against Nikki Songus. Golnick had not voted in the last seven elections, had been arrested uh, for drunk driving coming out of an ACDC concert shirtless. Uh, I, I, I'm the guy running against uh, John Tierney Hudek, you know, was someone who is a Bertha. He questions whether Obama was born in the United States, number one. Number two, he actually had a poster on his front lawn comparing Obama to Osama bin Laden, so the President of the United States, to a terrorist, and basically equating them. Up. Those are not, in my opinion, mainstream Republicans even, let alone people that uh, most residents of Massachusetts want to see them uh, working on, on their behalf in Congress. Finally, the last seat which I, I thought that they put up a, a weak candidate was in the 10th CD, which was is one of the most conservative congressional districts in the state, yet Jeff Perry uh, lost to, to Bill Keating. And um, you know, Perry, because of his issues with uh, the law formerly as a, as a police officer, in which he was involved with an incident where he was a supervising officer, and uh, one of the officers under his supervision engaged in conduct which resulted in him being sent to jail for four years uh, involving the young woman, which I'm sure everybody's heard about by now. Um, so Perry cost them that open seat, in my opinion. 
Secondly, he hurt Baker when Baker uh, was forced to either ignore him and slight him uh, or to, to and not campaign with him or to go down the Cape as he did, as he chose to do, and basically uh, campaign with him. That hurt Baker, I think. It slowed his momentum at a key point of the, the campaign. And finally, I think uh, Perry is going to continue to hurt both Mitt Romney and, and Scott Brown as they have to ask answer questions about uh, being aligned with Jeff Perry and someone who has the, the uh, record that he has, which was clearly rejected by the voters of the of the 10th. Now, the governor's race was interesting because we had three candidates uh, in it. How do you think that affected the dynamics of the campaign and the outcome? Well, I think it clearly affected the, the dynamics very significantly. The outcome, not so much. I mean, if you added uh, most polls leading up to the election suggested that Tim Cahill's vote, which at the end of the day was 8%, if, if, uh, if you forced those people to make a decision, it would roughly split between Baker and Patrick. That's contrary to conventional analysis, but the pollsters continuously pointed to that as the likely uh, conclusion if Cahill were not in the race. Even if you gave 75% of the votes of Tim Cahill to Charlie Baker. Uh, it, it's, it's basically still Patrick's. He has a very small margin. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think that Tim Cahill in the race at the end of the day um, caused Charlie Baker the race. However, um, it did have a significant impact on the dynamic, uh, specifically the Republican Governors Association early on, as you remember, Al, decided to spend uh, north of $1.5 million on anti-Tim Cahill and a little bit anti-Deval Patrick ads. Uh, if Tim Cahill wasn't in the race, though, that money could have very easily gone towards one target, Deval Patrick, which would have hurt the governor, no question about it. Uh, some of the ads were effective. I don't know that the timing of those ads was the most effective because I don't think Charlie Baker had introduced himself yet. So I, I think that the, the dynamic was seriously at play. I also, if I may, think that the whole Paul Lascoco defection was one of three incidents towards the end of the campaign, Al, that, that I think slowed Charlie Baker's momentum. Charlie Baker was campaigning as this, oh, I'm above the Beacon Hill politics of old. I'm a reformer to some extent. I want to change the culture up there. And when Los Coco endorsed him, um, everybody said, wait a minute, this is the guy that's against backroom deals. This is the ultimate backroom deal. And, and they didn't like it. And then the other two incidents I thought that slowed uh, Baker, if I can just answer my own query, Al, is that uh, the campaigning with Perry on the Cape uh, two weeks out of the election. And then finally the big dig memo that Charlie Baker wrote. It was a memo to file on the spending of uh, – uh, transportation spending. It was entitled fiscal year 1999 through fiscal year 2003. Three or four days before Charlie Baker left state service, he wrote that memo to himself, which uh, was uncovered just uh, 10 days or so before the election, in which he talked about, you know, a surreal financing plan uh, because of the uh, extent to which the costs of the central artery are uh, going through the roof, and uh, he talked about um, keeping this quiet until after the 1998 gubernatorial election, which I was a 
lieutenant gubernatorial nominee on the Democratic side, in which we were told time and again by the Salucci Swift administration that things were on time and on budget. We know now that what we alluded to then, that it wasn't true. So I think those those things hurt um, Charlie Baker, and, and I think the three-person dynamic hurt him, although the numbers, if you added them up, wouldn't have helped him. And what do you think uh, people on Beacon Hill are going to draw from this election? What, what implications do you think it has for the way the priorities they set in over the next couple of years? Well, I, I think, um, you know, for one thing, uh, people in the House and in the Senate that do their job, um, that, that are very active and engaged in their district, for the most part, they'll be fine. There are some hardworking, uh, terrific state representatives who lost races for re-election that, you know, they, they, they paid attention to their district and, and did everything right. They just lost. Uh, they're the exception, I think, though. I think a lot of the people who, who lost uh, weren't as active in their district uh, week in and week out for two years or the two-year term as they should have been. I think um, that some some people who lost, uh, you know, only woke up with six weeks to go and, and, and said, you know, gee, I better get going. Well, Everybody had a warning bell. That warning bell was January 19th when Scott Brown won. They should have been aware that they had to work harder than ever in 2010 and had to be all over their district. Uh, for the most part, I think those that did, that really paid attention and that worked their district, they they were fine. They were reelected. Those that didn't were paying the consequences. The other thing I would say that um, that we can draw from this, and this is more of a, a political slash campaign uh, topic than it is something that um, will be on the agenda up at Beacon Hill. But uh, and and that is that technology has its limits. That you know it wasn't always the person who had the most Facebook friends or, or Twitter followers who won the election. Now, you know, particularly for Democrats, and I think the biggest reason why it was such a blue sweep in Massachusetts this year was boots on the streets, that people were out there, that the, the Democratic uh, state party led by John Walsh, in conjunction with uh, some, some union groups, um, uh, including SEIU, uh, knocked on uh, uh, over 325,000 doors on Saturday and Sunday, and believe it or not, spoke to about a half million Democratic-oriented voters during that same period, on their doorsteps, a half million voters, and these, by the way, are not the, the people who, you know, are going to trudge through a snowstorm to vote like myself. These are people that are the sporadic voters that you really got to turn out and you got to get them enthused and the, and the like. And they were able to do that just one by one, knocking on people's doors, walking up their steps, saying hello, explaining why they were there, why it was important. And they did it, and, and those people then turned around and voted. And uh, boots on the streets beats uh, Twitter every time. And finally, what do you think the political dynamics in the next Congress are going to be? Do you, do you think it's going to be gridlock, and will major policies like health care reform be reversed? I don't think they can reverse health care um, because that requires two-thirds vote, and you know that Obama is not going to sign into law a, a repeal of health care. They could try to defund it, um, but they do so at their peril. And I hearken back to, to uh, Newt Gingrich uh, trying to shut down uh, with President Clinton uh, getting engaged in that, that deadlock, gridlock, where uh, government was shut down for a few days and, and uh, the, the Republicans lost their 
majority. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, he'll still be in the minority. He's the Republican senator from Kentucky um, that uh, will be joined by Rand Paul, the Tea Party guy. Uh, well, he, he said his top priority, McConnell did, over the next two years is to make sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. Now, that is not what people want. Eighty percent of the American public want the Democrats and Republicans to work together. Look, we've got a lot of issues, internationally as well as uh, domestically, that we have to confront, we have to deal with. The people of the United States want Congress to work on some of those issues. And I think if, if we see gridlock, that a lot of members in the House of Representatives will um, face the consequences two years from this November. And, uh, and, and similarly in the Senate, although I will say in the Senate, of the 33 votes up in the Senate in, in 2012, uh, 22 of them are Democrats. So, again, it could really hurt the Democrats if this gridlock up. But I think people want to see the economy get going. I want to see they want to see a laser-like focus on jobs. And hopefully we'll see some of that. that uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic, although to be candid, I, I'm not quite certain that any of this is going to happen. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on my Red Sox hat because I'm a perennial optimist and I'm hoping for the best. But uh, if, if you put a gun to my head, I'm not sure I'd back it up with any money. Warren, uh, thanks very much for talking with us today. My, my pleasure. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.